into life what we joyfully sing. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Is that our life? Turn with me, if you would, this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. We'll read from the opening verse and just read through the opening seven verses of the chapter. Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Just pause to another season in our authorized version where the word damnation is used in a way of a lesser way than we always use it of eternal loss, but of condemnation that is here. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Amen. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we have sung. Lord, we have tasted of love unknown. Our Savior's love to us, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. What a marvel that you have purposed, you have worked, you are bringing to eternal fruition that change of the unlovely rebel into the image of your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, make even of these moments today, take your word and be polishing us as stones in your kingdom and your house. Give us wisdom as we consider something of these words today. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we have entered into this practical section of the book of Romans, after those classic opening two verses of chapter 12, we found in the remainder of chapter 12 a section we entitled, How to Treat My Brother. The remaining verses of the chapter, which we said the division wasn't watertight, but there was at least clearly progression from the brethren to the world, we looked secondly at how to treat my neighbor. Well, today as we turn the page to chapter 13, I want to entitle our thoughts, How to Treat My Government. Interesting providence of God that it is early in an election year that we come upon this section of Romans. Found another interesting providence that in the last, let's give it 16 hours, uh, I have, from two unsolicited places, uh, been approached about a question with regard to Christians and government. And these people had no idea that I was preaching in Romans. So it seems that it is a topic that, well, is and is only increasingly this year going to be on people's minds. Well, I hopefully will not split the church today uh, with... Uh, political commentary and all of those things, save that we 
see what the scriptures say. But in approaching the questions that surround the Christian, or can we even say the church's relationship to the state, there are an abundance of questions. There is an abundance of disagreement among Christians. We'll not seek to take time to pursue all of the related questions today. I have often, you know me, big picture guy, often thought of the inability of the church, even since the days of the Reformation, when the modern state emerged from the chaos of the Middle Ages, uh, the inability of Christians to really come to terms ultimately with the question of the church and state. I was pursuing a few thoughts about Lutheran Germany, Anglican England, Presbyterian Scotland, and Baptist America, but there's a lot of problems with that brief uh, statement, but there are questions people have, we have, with regard to the church. Can I suggest, again, as I said, we're not going to pursue any type of deep or philosophical study. There might be some cause to pause on philosophy with regard to Christians and their questions on this. But I want to suggest that there's often a connection between a person's views on eschatology and their views on church-state relations. But eschatology is a field where we have some degree of uncertainty with regard to all the details. Hence our denominational position of charity with regard to the three major millennial views. They're just real questions as to some of those details. So there's always a danger in bringing our conclusion on other matters that are based on our conclusions with regard to our prophetic charts. Can I try and make everybody uncomfortable for just a minute? Consider this. I'm talking about all the different millennial views. I'm going to make all of us uncomfortable. Consider how amillennialism, its understanding of the kingdom being now, was helpful in the evolution of the Roman church's domination over Europe in what we call the Dark Ages. Or, consider how in the 1990s, a conservative Presbyterian minister shot and killed an abortion doctor and completely justified his actions based upon his understanding of a Christian theonomic dominion theology. I heard him interviewed on national television. It was sobering just to follow his rationale. Or, let's make us premillennialists uncomfortable too, how that, well, let's say two or three of the major cults of the last 200 years, let's say Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, maybe a twinge in Christian science as well, emerged from a perverted view of pre-millennialism. So we can take all of those millennial perspectives and let them lead us to a wrong conclusion, to wrong actions. Deviations from an uncertain starting point can indeed lead to serious error. That's why I tell everybody the foundational premise of your study of prophecy your guiding force through all of it has to be the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It has to be gospel-centered. So, deviations, disagreements can come. Let me just say that whatever plans God has for the nations of this earth in the future, His instructions to Christians in the meantime are fairly clear both by instruction in this chapter of Romans and other portions of the New Testament, as we'll see, Lord willing, and by example in the lives of God's people in Scripture, there are at least some pretty straightforward points 
that are worthy of our consideration today. So I just want to set before you four key thoughts with regard to what we read here in Romans and what it leads us to elsewhere. How do I treat my government? I've seen the gospel should be the center of how I treat my brother. The gospel should be the center point of how I treat my neighbor. It may be that the gospel is the center point of how I treat my government too. These four points for us today, I trust simple thoughts, basic thoughts that should guide all the particulars that go beyond. My first point for you today is this, that we should follow a submissive posture. A submissive posture when it comes to government. And this is where we will focus our thoughts mainly on what is said here in Romans 13 and then look at some other portions as well. It's not really foggy what Paul is saying here. He's writing to the church in Rome. That in itself is interesting. First century Rome. Not an obscure place. Capital of the world. Everybody knows about it. It's a place where politics is kind of on everybody's mind every day. It was a place where emperors kind of had to have somebody test their food and look around every corner. And, well, we know some of the stories in the history. But here we're told, I say, in terms that are not vague, that every soul, everyone, be subject to the higher powers. It's interesting there, just a side-side comment, a Hebrew perspective, every soul. We say every body. Same thing. Everyone, every person, whether they're depicted by a soul or a body. But everyone, it's not that Paul says, let the unsaved who are still citizens, as we've seen already, of this world's kingdoms, we're now in a new body of people. He doesn't say, let's let them be subject to the higher powers and we'll ignore those powers. No, he's talking to us. And so I say a submissive posture is plainly taught to us in Scripture. We're to be subject unto these powers. We're told that these powers are ordained of God. Now there he's taking a theme that shouldn't take anybody by surprise. We can look back to Pharaoh. Even for this same purpose. Have you raised yourself up? Wait a minute. That's not what it said, is it? Even for this same purpose have I raised you up, God says of and to Pharaoh. So whether it's a Pharaoh or a Nebuchadnezzar or a David or a George Washington, it's a sovereign providence of God that has placed them where they are, placed us where we are. And so Paul says that we're to be subject to these earthly powers because they are ordained of God. Now, we can press on and see through the passage here and other portions. They have an accountability to this God who has placed them where they are. Their task in the civil arena is to be a helper to good and to be an instrument of judgment against evil. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. And so the promotion of good and the subjection and punishment of evil is the chief task of civil government. When you think of this world, even a world as full of wickedness as the first century Roman world, where would that wickedness have gone if there were no restraining civil power? Talk about being big picture people. Do you ever think about just the sheer facts of depraved humanity? 
where we would go, what we would do, what we would be, if there were no checks, if there were no restraints upon our sinful passions, perhaps as that antediluvian world with little restraint descended into an ever-deepening circles of sin, and ultimately the earth was filled with violence. And God sent that summary judgment of the flood upon that unrestrained world. What will be true in the end times? Lawlessness prevailing? And so civil government is to restrain evil and promote good. And they have an obligation to God who has placed them in these positions of authority to do such. And they will, as we read in other scriptures, to be sure, answer to God for how they have performed this that they're ordained to do. We are told, I mean, again, think of the context. It is to a Roman system. It's to a world with emperors and subordinate governors. We have the story of some of their wickednesses in the New Testament. Think of the Herods. They'll come up a little later again today. Think of the evils that aren't recorded in the Bible that are recorded in secular history of some of these leaders. They will answer to God. But we're to pay tribute. Pay taxes to these rulers. Need an example of that? Our Lord Himself questioned his detractors trying to catch him in something. Put a wedge between him and Rome. Put a wedge between the Savior and civil government. He says, no, Peter, go collect this coin. Pay the tax for yourself and for me. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's not a lack of clarity with regard to this teaching. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see by precept or example the cause of Christian revolution or Christian statehood. Rather, in the times of the Gentiles, we read that wars and rumors of wars will prevail until Jesus comes. In the meantime, we're to preach and live the gospel as model citizens in this earth. Read with me some other connected scriptures. If you turn with me over to the pastoral epistles, firstly, 1 Timothy chapter 2. brought the Bible today that I try and keep the pages real good, so I have to turn slow. My sword drill Bible from second grade, well, I didn't turn those pages slow enough and it's somewhere gone. First Timothy 2, the opening three verses, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Interesting. It's not instruction with regard to securing ourselves by overthrowing these rulers, praying for those that are already there in power, with one of the great ends of that prayer and our prayers for them being that we could lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That we might bear testimony in a calm world. That's part of the prayer of 
God's people. Turn over to Titus. Titus chapter 3. Again, Paul writing, verse 1, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing meekness unto all men. Here again, subject to principalities and powers, obeying magistrates. Now over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter two, Paul says, or Peter says here, we left Paul, we're in Peter now. Verses thirteen to seventeen. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Is free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Do you see a, a pattern? Do you see a, a parallel? Do you see what is clearly there? And do you see what is clearly not there with regard to how I'm to treat my government? I'm to pre treat it as a humble subject as a noble citizen. And part of our good citizenship, Peter even says here, is going to be part of our testimony. Putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's one of those cases where I think that little devotional question I put to you often is applicable. What's the first thing that comes to people's minds when you walk into the room? Well, from what I see in the New Testament, that shouldn't be political activist. It should be godly citizen. Now, again, there's a, a thousand pieces of this that we can't deal with in one message. We live in a nation where we have the privilege to engage whether it's in the ballot box, whether it's supporting candidates, whether it's promoting causes that are godly and moral and good, and all of that is worthy for God's people to engage in. But there's a limit not only to how far we can go in exercising kingly power, ruling over people, there's a limit, I say, to how far we can go just as far as God's sanction and our ability. I'm, my brain is racing on. To me, a lot of political activism from a Christian perspective, the logical, the only logical end of that train is a revival of Rome. I, again, can't pursue that to its fullness, but it's been interesting to me to see people over the years that have been, shall we say, more concerned with politics than with the gospel. One told me early, early, early here, visiting, that our country didn't need revival. It needed reformation. He wanted us to be politically influential. And maybe revival will come later. I think he's getting the cart before the horse. We we're going to force compliance to our laws. The laws we want to base on God's law. And not be concerned for their soul. Shouldn't we rather have more concern for their soul? And have the power of the Spirit change their hearts and lives? What do we find and what do we not find? We find a submissive,
posture. We find here a humble obedience, not a revolutionary overthrow. That's what is taught to us in Scripture. That's what, as we'll see later, is modeled for us in the Scriptures by these God's people. Well, unless we bury ourselves in total fear of these particular thoughts that I've suggested under this heading, a submissive posture, let me give you our second point, and that is a higher loyalty. A higher loyalty. Obviously, there comes a point where conflict can enter between secular civil powers and the believer and the church, the corporate body of believers. How do we know when we reach that point? How do we know when this higher loyalty needs to kick in and we have to cease in our submission to civil authorities? Well, the answer to that is patently clear in the Scriptures. It is at the point when that civil authority requires of me that I disobey God's authority. And I think it's interesting that if you just consider the matter that scattered throughout the whole of Scripture, we have prominent examples of the few occasions where such a crisis was reached in the lives of God's people. In the books of Moses, the Hebrew midwives, a Pharaoh ascended the throne that was now fearful of Israel and their large numbers, maybe an enemy will come and fight against us and the Israelites will say, you know, if we were to side with the other guys, we could perhaps gain freedom and get out of Egypt. Not be making bricks for Pharaoh anymore, we'd be making bricks for us. And so Pharaoh decreed that the male children would be slain, murdered. There was a civil ruler who disobeyed his God-ordained role of promoting good and putting down evil and started, for selfish reasons, pushing something that was evil. And the Hebrew midwives disobeyed. They saved the male children alive. And it said God blessed them for that. They weren't trying to revolt and overthrow Pharaoh. But when Pharaoh told them to murder, they said, we can't. Turn the page and go to Daniel and his companions. I'm not asking you to turn there. I'm sorry, I said that rhetorically. Daniel and his companions, we looked at a little bit over COVID in some of our Sunday night meetings. Remarkable examples. I mean, you think about those men. Their church wasn't just small and compromised and not living up to its former glories and testimony in the world like our days are. Their church was gone. Daniel and his companions, you might say, had never been to church. They had not been able to engage in the many types and shadows of the Old Testament temple and the sacrificial system. They were captives in a Gentile empire. And yet Daniel, we know from his prophetic portions, had been studying Jeremiah, learned from Jeremiah that 70 years were determined for the people to be in their captivity to Babylon. But he also would have read in Jeremiah that they were to seek to pray for the welfare of that city to which God took them. Well, that's a pretty interesting thing to put to an ancient or maybe even a modern Jew. Pray for the welfare of this empire that is controlling you. Because if there's peace in Babylon, 
you're going to be enabled to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, if we can translate it to New Testament terminology, and bear witness there in a way that you failed to bear witness when you weren't in captivity. And that's exactly what Daniel and his companions did. And we remarked in looking at Daniel how respectful, how careful they were in engaging the intermediary leaders and the chief leaders in Babylon. Melzar, the chief of the unit, they didn't want him to get in trouble. Look, we're going to have a problem with this meat that is given to us. Scholars question, is that just merely a Old Testament dietary restriction that they were jealous for, or was it the whole picture of idolatry that would have attached itself to them in the process? Whatever the underlying principle, the fact was, they said, look, this is going to be a problem for us, but we don't want you to get in trouble. Let's do this. Prove us. You take our... You take the filet mignon that's supposed to come to us and you just take it home and you and your wife have some extra. And give that a few days and see. I'm sure he appreciated, maybe for more than one reason, their attitude in honoring God and honoring their conscience. They weren't just saying we're going to stick it in every Babylonian's eye that we can. And we've wrestled with some of this before. But these men that were submissive, they took that submissive posture, as we said in our first thought. They did have a higher loyalty. And just as the Hebrew midwives, when it came from their civil authorities, that now there was to be worship rendered to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, they said no. They got the privilege of getting a second chance when they were accused. You know, these three Hebrews here, bring them to me. I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear this music and the call to worship, you bow down. We can't. Some of the bravest words in the Scripture. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand. And you just think of that. Hmm. your country's gone you don't have an army none of your soldiers are here there's three of you guys and my army's here and the rest of the world is subject to me that's interesting but if not if he chooses not to if he lets you slaughter us that's fine we're not going to worship your image they had a higher loyalty so for all their submissive posture, there were lines that they couldn't cross. And what a story there. Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't we throw in three? But I see four. What a text. I see four. They had a higher loyalty. Perhaps a classic text, we'll not turn it up, but in the Acts of the Apostles. Chapters 4 and 5, as the apostles in the earliest days of the church brought before the Sanhedrin, who had both ecclesiastical and a measure of civil authority there in Jerusalem, and their reply to them. And here's an interesting addition to the little survey. It wasn't here that they were being required to worship a false god or being required to murder a fellow being, they were being told not to preach. That puts it on another page, so to speak. But what do they say? Whether it be right to do this in your sight or not, that's up to you, but for us, we ought to obey God rather than men. They had a higher loyalty. And you take it all the way to the end of Scripture. Those that in our theology we call tribulation saints. There's going to be an order from civil powers that all would receive a particular mark. 
And without such submission, you won't be able to buy or sell. Of all things, the government tracing your transactions through the bank. Oh. There was a point, there will be a point where saints in the future will have to exercise a higher loyalty. Not part of armed rebellion. Not part of seeking to make trouble for the city to which we've been brought captives. A higher loyalty to God. So clearly the exception to the general principle of a submissive posture is that when this earthly power requires of us that we disobey God, then we must obey God rather than men. But again, note how respectful, how non-revolutionary the examples, the exceptions we find in Scripture really are. Can I give you a third point today? And I was so encouraged we must have sung fast today that I got to start preaching early and I see even then the time is gone. My third thought for you today is this. With regard to how do I treat my government, the third perspective is this. We have a prophetic voice. Several years ago, there was a man in one of our churches that... um, began to engage me in a lengthy email campaign. I had suspicions from his first email that he was drinking at a fountain of Reconstructionism. Those were borne out over time. But he was pressing hard about my mindset on church's involvement with government and how we were to engage. And it just dawned on me a little ways into the correspondence that What he was really lobbying for is for us to exercise a kingly function in the world. For the church to pursue civil power and make use of it for Christian purposes. It sounds good in in principle and from a philosophical standpoint, we can make a lot of arguments. But one of the things that kind of perplexes me about the Reconstructionists is they bring many philosophical arguments that sound good until they become contrary to what God has revealed with regard to these things. And one of my conclusions with this brother was, I think we're to have a prophetic voice instead of a kingly voice. I am to speak truth both to the king and to the pauper. I can speak that truth and let the chips fall where they may. The pauper may have nothing he can do but insult me. The king may have the power to execute me, which some kings have done when the prophetic voice of God's people has been uttered in their realms. Think of a man named John the Baptist. He was given a remarkable place in ministry. He's the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All the other prophets said, Messiah is coming. John the Baptist said, He's here. John wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't trying to overthrow Rome. It was left to the later Jewish zealots to keep fleshing that out until Rome squashed them in A.D. 70. But in the course of John the Baptist's preaching, and what was the focus of his preaching to Israel, a baptism of repentance, a real prophet. Somehow, I was reading one that said interestingly from some of the verb tenses used in the historical record, that these comments of John weren't a one-time only thing. But when Herod imprisoned John, there was a woman involved that had not been made happy by John's preaching that her union to Herod was unlawful. 
It's interesting reading the Herods. Men marrying nieces, women marrying grandparents, uh, brothers stealing wives. It's, yes. John preached in such a way that it was known that this civil leader was in the wrong with regard to his morality. He had a prophetic voice and ultimately it cost him his life. There's a remarkable reference in Luke 13 with regard to the same Herod. The Pharisees come unto Christ as he's preaching in Perea and they have a message. Herod seeks your life. You keep doing this, you're going to get it from Herod. Commentators wrestle with whether the Pharisees were really sent by Herod to convey that message or if they thought it up on their own to scare Christ and make him move down to Judea and Jerusalem where they had a little more control of things and they could deal with him then there. Well, whatever the reality is, they bring this report to Christ and Christ says, go tell that fox. I preach today, I baptize tomorrow, the third day I minister here. That's remarkable. It, it almost seems uncharacteristic. But here's Christ with a prophetic voice rendering commentary, brief commentary on the character on the ungodliness of a civil ruler. If our Lord boldly uttered such a sermon, then it is entirely fitting for those with a submissive posture to civil government to also, in a prophetic way, speak to evil where it exists. I think again the examples we find that's not what permeates the book of Acts. In some ways these were at least with John and Christ in Herod's case incidents that were maybe saying it this way is too strong forced upon them but there were issues that were so prominent, as it were, they couldn't be ignored. But they weren't the focus. They weren't the underlying purpose of the ministry of John the Baptist or of Jesus to get rid of Herod. It was a prophetic voice. But let me give you a fourth and final thought today. An effective testimony. An effective testimony. Think through the examples. One of the things Peter said about living a godly life and of submitting to those in authority is that one of the ways we put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The testimony these men bore was a gospel testimony. The testimony of these believers, and we've just highlighted these points through the whole of Scripture, it wasn't a revolutionary overthrow perspective. It was from humble people living lives where they had been placed in the providence of God, outliving and outworking the gospel. Instead of a political agenda to take control of the world. I have two or three times now taught the English Bible course in Acts in our seminary. The first time through, those are always scary times. First time teaching a class. I was amazed. I read one of the commentaries in preparation and in the introductory material, this more modern commentator suggested that one of the Purposes, if we outline purposes in the book of Acts, you know, your date, authorship, purpose, themes. One of the purposes was an apologetic purpose. To put on display before the Roman world 
that it didn't have anything to fear from the Christian church. And if you see the interaction of all of the characters and acts, and Paul in particular as he's the apostle to the Gentiles and he got into into the capital of that Roman world, ultimately was martyred by that Roman world. But yet his relationship, that submissive posture is remarkable. I remember really being smitten. I, I know I've mentioned it here, but in Ephesus, when the silversmith seeks to stir up the crowd against the believers and ultimately to Paul to run him out of town for purely economic reasons, he is reaching so many people with the gospel that our idols are not selling like they used to, and our bottom line is going down. We've got to do something. So let's fashion a lie, bring a false charge against Paul, and and the Asiarchs, the chiefs of Asia, little parenthesis there, which were his friends, begged Paul not to enter into the theater. Interesting relationship he had with those Gentile, for all we know, unsaved rulers of Ephesus. And you see little incidents of that scattered all throughout the book of Acts. None of the apostles, none of the believers were troublemakers in those ungodly Gentile nations. They had a submissive posture. They did have a higher loyalty. And once their enemies found that out, like Daniel's enemies, hey, let's make a law that you, you, you can only pray to this God for the next month. That'll get Daniel. We can't get him on anything else. The higher loyalty, the prophetic voice, but the effective testimony. Think in these little windows we've looked at. Do you ever marvel on your readings through the book of Daniel about Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, if it wasn't genuine spiritual conversion, it reads really close to it. Daniel had an effective testimony with regard to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Paul gathered a crowd to stone him at the temple. Paul's position, the ecclesiastical and civil authority that was allowed to the Jewish Sanhedrin by Rome, they weren't to exercise capital punishment. That, of course, is why they needed Pilate to crucify Jesus. But sometimes they just skipped that detail and did take life. Stephen... He had something of an effective testimony on Paul. Think of the Philippian jailer. What kind of attitude did Paul and Silas have when they got arrested that night? Were they grumpy, yelling at the jailer? You have no right to do this to us. We're going to sit here and make you miserable and be miserable ourselves. They were singing. God releases them by an earthquake, and yet they don't escape. The jailer comes in. He's ready to kill himself. Paul says, go ahead and do it, dude. Wasn't his testimony, was it? Do yourself no harm. We're here. Here's this probably descendant of Roman soldiers. Grew up in a godless culture. Sirs. What must I do to be saved? You guys have something I've never seen. I need that. You read the rest of Acts. What kind of testimony do they have with Lysias, with Felix, with Julius? What do we read of Paul's prison epistles and the impact in Caesar's household?
Paul seemed to be more concerned with the gospel than he was with an empire. For good or for ill. This is a hasty general survey of what is sadly a hotly debated topic among Christians today. But from the Scripture, I challenge you to find something contrary to these four principles. A submissive posture. Yes, a point where a higher loyalty must kick in. A prophetic voice, not blind to sin, but an effective testimony. You know, we can seek to gain and wield earthly power in the same way godless people do. And we won't look very much different than them. But if we're immune to those desires, if our focus is on a heavenly kingdom and our love for our neighbor is strong, we may as these have an effective testimony even in times that are a lot more troubled and a lot more perplexing than ours already are. So let us pray for wisdom. Even in an election year. Wisdom and grace. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask today for the help of the Spirit of God. We have read and considered some very simple and plain things. Preserve us for making some of this harder than it really is. And so we pray for grace to hear today what was written to Roman Christians 2,000 years ago. We pray it all in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.